Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And down here, if you're listening on audio, you can't see, but I might start putting my Twitter handle in the or in the the headliner there right next to my name at the particular d you can follow me there you can also follow our shows or our ministries twitter at the particular b so you can see a theme happening there but anyways i hope everyone has had a good week so far and we'll we're starting a little bit earlier well quite a bit earlier today than i originally had planned i originally planned for 10 a.m but Got some things going on today, so I'm getting started a little earlier. But this podcast today is going to be a companion, or it is a companion piece to last week's episode, which was about unity, Christian unity, and focused around the topic of leaving your church. When is it properly your church? And talking even more specifically about leaving your church because of somebody offending you or sinning against you so this is looking at kind of the flip side of that we're talking about when people divide when is it okay for christians to divide christians should be divisive that might seem like a provocative term but it is true christians should be in some way divisive we shouldn't be christians shouldn't be running around acting like we have to get along with everybody over everything so there there are problems with with doing something like that if we're not careful we can fall into this ecumenism that's not helpful so i want to read a little bit from nehemiah cox this is from nehemiah cox's a vindication of the truth vindicate Veritatis, I think is how you pronounce it, it's Latin, a vindication of the truth when he wrote against Thomas Collier, who was a particular Baptist who was a heretic. He was a confessed the faith and then he left it. Uh, so this is kind of his response to Collier. But he says this in response to Collier, which I think is very, very helpful here. He says on page 22, he says, quote, but I must tell him there can be no gospel peace without truth, nor communion of saints without an agreement and fundamental principles of religion. We must contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints and mark those that cause divisions among us by their new doctrines contrary thereto and avoid them. So he was basically saying we need to avoid Collier, Thomas Collier, because he has become one who's teaching heretical doctrines. He's not... In agreement on these fundamental aspects of the faith and so we must avoid them and not be found with these people with hence division right there's some kind of division going on there that or that cox is saying that we must have there can be no gospel peace right there's no peace there's only war with those who unrepentantly teach and hold the false doctrine so this call for division that cox is giving here really is nothing new right there this isn't something that he came up with or that the particular baptist came up with or the reform came up with 
This is a biblical principle that we see that we're not to have fellowship with those who do not hold the same things we do fundamentally and avoid them. Like we wouldn't go to a Jehovah's Witness church and be at peace with those people. Why? Because they have fundamental disagreements on biblical truth that are critical to the faith. So we can't have any kind of uh, real fellowship with them. There's no gospel peace, as Collier says. Okay. But, you know, you might be asking, well, didn't we just talk about unity? <laughs> Last week we said Christians are to be unified. Division is bad. But that has to be qualified. Yes, unity is good, but a, a qualified unity. It's a qualified unity. Okay. And this isn't just about doctrine either. Christians are to divide over sin, right? If a Christian is living in sin, we're to, you know, separate from them in the, you know, go through the proper procedures to do that. But there is to be division there, properly speaking. And we'll look at that a little bit too. And as it relates to Christian liberty, there's going to be some division uh, as well. But uh, that's not really an oughtness as to uh, division necessarily. Uh, but we'll touch on that a little bit to where there are some areas where Christians can disagree uh, respectfully with one another. Um, but my focus today really wants to be on when Christians should be dividing. You know, when it's there's an obligation to divide, not merely, you know, just some uh, indifferent division where you might have Christian liberty dis discussions or issues of conscience that might uh, be different. All right, let's dive right in. Doctrine is crucial for the Christian, okay? Number one, there are certain things that Christians must believe. There are certain things that Christians must believe if we are to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, if we're to have uh, true unity in the other direction. But if we're to call ourselves Christians, there are certain things that we must believe. Okay? It's not just any doctrine that is to be held. It's the doctrine that we find in Scripture in those core areas that we're to believe. And it ultimately comes from Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, very familiar passage. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So understanding of what those things are that we need to walk in accordance to the faith with at a fundamental level are going to come from Scripture. Scripture provides everything we need to help us to live a godly life. There's nothing else that we need. It is sufficient, right? It is sufficient. And we are naive if we think that doctrine doesn't matter when it comes to the fundamentals of the faith, okay? And everything we need is in our Bibles for us to live a godly life before God. Okay. There are certain things that we have to believe. We need to have a true doctrine of God. We need to believe the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. <clears throat> and these are named to name at least a few. Okay. Those essentials of the faith that we unify around as Christians and that really impact our salvation at the end of the day. Right? Whether or not we're worshiping the right God of the Bible, whether or not we're believing the right way of salvation, all those things are crucial to understanding our faith. Right, We need to believe the gospel. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for 
the Greek. <clears throat> if someone says that they believe in works, or if they believe in some sort of, you know, way of bringing themselves into the kingdom of God, what is that going to, uh, you know, how does that affect your standing before God? It means you're not saved because you're not resting in Christ alone. You're resting in your works, right? So that's a fundamental doctrine that we cannot compromise on. We have to believe that we are saved by Christ alone, by his work alone, uh, through the means of faith alone. And the gospel is the power of God that brings us to salvation. If you've listened to a previous episode I did where we talked about light shining into darkness, right? God's power. God is the one who shines that light into our dark hearts and saves us. It's not something that we do of ourselves to bring ourselves to that light. God is having to shine his light into our darkness. Uh, and without that, we would not be saved. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So Paul is saying here, you heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit was given to you. And this is after Paul has God done saying that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and the spirit is our guarantee. <clears throat> but the gospel was the means here, right? You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then you believed and then you received the spirit. Gospel is crucial to our salvation. Okay, And notice in these verses that God does not work outside of the gospel when it comes to the power of God to salvation. His methods are set and he will save how he has ordained. That doesn't mean that God is limited ontologically or absolutely by the gospel. God is able to do whatever he wants to be saved, but in terms of those ways that he's prescribed in his will, this is how he has set it uh, to be. So to pretend to bring salvation outside of the gospel is to bring in devilish lies. And so this is something that we cannot compromise on. We have to stay true to the gospel of Christ, or we will damn ourselves and damn others because we're not teaching them the truth. So the gospel is crucial. It's fundamental, right? So if people come and they want to, you could have, you know, maybe a form of the prosperity gospel. It could be mixing works like the Roman Catholics. Yeah, we believe in grace, but, you know, we got to, we're infused with our right, with righteousness from God. We're not really justified or imputed. There's something in me that is making me acceptable before God. Anything like that, we have to divide over. There's full stop, end of discussion, no compromise, no room for debate. A right doctrine of God. Now, this would actually be implied in the gospel. Having a right doctrine of God, absolutely. We need to have a right doctrine of God. This would be implied in the gospel, as each of these crucial doctrines are, uh, you know, each of these crucial doctrines are implied there, right? But you would have, um, you know, the doctrine of God implied in the gospel. And that's very, very important, because if we say that God saves, well, what God saves? Which God? There's a lot of gods out there. There's, you know, the Hindu God. There's the God of Mormonism. There's Jehovah's Witnesses. Which one is the one that actually saved us on the cross? It's the great I am. It's the unchangeable God, the simple God. It's the impassable God. All of those things are going to be there. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is going to have all of the same 
implications of the doctrine of God worked out, but there will be, you know, the basic elements there about who God is in terms of, uh, you know, believing we're going to believe he's in, you know, eternal. We're going to believe he's immutable. We're going to believe he's simple. Uh, but even some of the implications of those things might not be all worked out. But we're not going to believe in a different God than what the scriptures have said. Otherwise, you're not saved. <laughs> that's just, And that's historic Christianity. I mean, you look at the Athanasian Creed, for instance, said if you do not hold to these things that were taught there in the, in the Creed, namely the... Support, you know, the equality of the, I was trying to remember, so the equality of the persons, um, the unchangeableness of God, I think is another aspect of it. All those things taken there. If those things are not believed, you're not a Christian. If you're not, if they're not kept, it says you're not saved because you, if you don't get these things right, <laughs> you're worshiping a different God. Now, again, what that looks like in terms of the implications we can talk through and people sometimes have never heard these things, but they have the basics down and they're trying to work through the implications of them. So I want to make a distinction there. But if someone is denying these things unrepentantly and completely going after a different God, uh, then they've either fallen into sin as a Christian, fallen into heresy or a heretic, or or maybe not even a heretic, maybe just falling into heresy and need to come be repentant, or they're not a Christian. So we we have to, I think, especially as I'm studying this doctrine more, studying the history behind it, and just the, the implications of these things. I've become more and more convinced that, you know, we, we cannot get God wrong. It is a fundamental doctrine. <laughs> it's It's fundamental. Again, we can work through some people, you know, people who maybe some of the implications of these things they haven't worked out, or maybe they implicitly believe them and they just haven't put the terms to the doctrine yet. Okay, we can work through those things. But if we're, you know, way out left field and, and we, we're adamant about these things and we're not repenting of them and we're embracing these things uh, as truth that make the, these doctrines that make us believe in a different God, uh, then at the very least, there's going to be doubt of whether you're saved because that's a different God. That's not the God of the Bible. It's an idol. It's a creature of your own making. And that's a violation of the second commandment. You've made God in your own image. That's not the God of the Bible. So if you don't have the God of the Bible right, how in the world can you have your gospel right? Uh, it, some things to think about there. And this doctrine is just so flippantly thrown around today that even in reform circles, that uh, it, it's blasphemous, or at least coming close to being blasphemous, in my opinion. Uh, I know that we have to believe that Christ is God. Not only do we have to believe in the divine essence and the, the God who made all things, who is not creature, but we also need to believe in the, the God-man, the incarnate God, the incarnate word, right? The Christ. John 8, 24, therefore I said to you that uh, said to you that you will die in your sins, for you do not believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. So believing that Jesus is God is absolutely important. If you do not believe that I am he, in the Greek, there's no he there. It's ego I me. 
which uh, simply says I am. So if you translated it literally, it would say if unless uh, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And I think that has a great a greater impact in terms of the text's meaning because Jesus is not just saying, well, I'm the Christ. He's saying, I am, I am God. I am God. I am the great. I. If you don't believe in that, you will die in your sins. Believing that Christ is God, the incarnate one is God, the great. I am the simple, immutable, unchangeable God. You will die in your sins. It's crucial. We do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who saved us, the one who paid for our sins, the one who imputes his righteousness to his people and saves them by his blood. You will die in your sins. That's what the scriptures say. That's what the script, That should be a warning for professing Christians who are toying with false doctrines, and it should be a warning to those who aren't Christians that unless you do believe, that Christ is God and embrace him by faith alone, you will die in your sins. That's the warning that Jesus is giving here. And Jesus is talking to the religious leaders who are criticizing him and warning them. You believe, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He's warning them because they were accusing him of, uh, you know, they were pushing against him in different ways. And Jesus is giving them a stern warning here. So very, very important. Understanding that Jesus is the Christ is absolutely crucial to our understanding of uh, of who Christ is. So we have to be really careful about things like that. And, and again, I think, you know, you, you see people today, they, they put the emphasis, I'm going to talk a little bit about this toward the end, but just putting emphasis on secondary doctrines and the doctrine of the incarnation, a, Christ, a solid Christology is ignored or, or largely forgotten and not seen as supremely important in some or one of those things that we, you know, that is absolutely crucial. So we have to be really, really careful about things like that, that we're putting the proper doctrines in their proper places, not elevating tertiary doctrines to fundamental levels and pushing the fundamental doctrines of the tertiary levels. Unfortunately, that happens more often than not. Original sin. Original sin is another one. Denying that man is not fallen in Adam is to make man inherently righteous in some way and does not lead to a consistent gospel view since the gospel is about Jesus saving men from their utterly sinful state and not saving men who were just bad enough to be punished, but good enough to be righteous in God's sight. Okay, so we have to be really careful that when we're talking about original sin and where our sin came from in Adam, that we're not denying that. And there are people who do that all the time. I mean, historically, that's been the case. I mean, you look at Pelagius. That's a perfect example of that. Denying that we're actually sinful in Adam in the sense that the scriptures present. It's nothing new, but we do see it today. You know, you, you see a latent flowers that will, you know, den outright deny original sin. Somebody like that. That's heresy. That's a fundamental doctrine. Now you're saying that man is, at least in some sense, inherently righteous. I mean, a latent flowers would say that man is sinful and fallen, but not in the sense of, you know, like a Romans 5 or in the reform sense. He would not fall in that. Uh, that vein. 
Brother Jamie, haven't heard from you in a while, brother. Hope you're doing well. He is God. Amen, brother. He is God and Lord of all. Yes. Amen. Amen. Good to see you, brother. Glad you're uh, you're listening, and I hope you guys are doing well. I want to read a little bit from, uh, this is Sam Renahan's book, The Petty France Church, Part 1. This is, this, he has two parts, and I think he might be working on a third. I don't remember, but excellent resources on particular Baptist history. Brother Sam Renahan is going into primary source material uh, and look and looking at, um, you know, particular Baptist history, like church records and, and different important characters within particular Baptist history. Very, very helpful resource. You can get this on Amazon. Um, but on page 101, he talks about how the particular Baptists dealt with Collier. Thomas Collier, who we mentioned earlier, Nehemiah Cox wrote against him. He was a particular Baptist who embraced heretical views and left the, the Christian faith, essentially. And so you see... Um, you know, the particular Baptists had to deal with those things. But one of the fundamental doctrines that they say that they rejected him for was his understanding of original sin. He rejected it. He rejected it. So I want to read a little. This is from page 101. Um, let's see. It says, quote, He denies that the defilement of our nature is our sin. Additional word, page 22. How this also tends to corrupt the minds of men from the true notions of sin and grace, which lie in the foundation of all wherein we have to do with God, see in answer. So one thing that the particular Baptists did really well was they were documenting where these errors were. They didn't just make baseless accusations of Collier and wanted to get rid of them. They're like, look, you can go read these things for yourself. Here's this, the page number, and here's the book where he wrote it. You can go and look these things up. We're, here's the evidence that we're bringing against him. He denies that the defilement of our nature is our sin. He also tends to corrupt the minds of men from the true notions of sin and grace, which lie in the foundation of all we're in, we have to do with God. So he denies the defilement of our nature with our sin. This was considered fundamental by the particular Baptists. Original sin was considered fundamental, that they were willing to put someone out of their fellowship because of it. It's a critical doctrine. It leads to uh, saying that we are righteous inherently before God in our natural state. That is wicked. It's heretical. That's not biblical, and it will and it has a direct impact on the gospel. That's why it's it's not a doctrine we can compromise on. Not for one second. And of course, there are you know there's many implications of the gospel that must be believed either explicitly or implicitly. And there are things that people are, you know, we're, as we're growing in our faith, like Ephesians 4 says, we're going to, uh, God has given men to the church and gifts to the church so that they grow up in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? So that they're no longer children thrown around by every wind of doctrine. We're growing up in the faith. So we're going to grow up in our knowledge of the gospel and our love of God and our appreciation of Jesus Christ. So there will be implications that we will work out. But those base doctrines are there um, that we we hold to as Christians. And so, you know, there's a lot more things that could be said, but those are, you know, at least some things I wanted to, to point out. When we're talking about unity and essentials, it requires Christians to say no to anything that's against those essentials. And I, I think I've kind of brought this out already. 
but there are dangers in in ecumenism you know playing kumbaya with all these different groups we have to be careful about that i'm all for trying to work with different groups but we have to be careful which ones we work with and how we work with them because we don't want to be seen as participating in their debauchery and in her heresy but we also don't want to you know have unnecessary division either because we are to live at peace with all men which would include pagan wicked even heretical men so we have to find that balance but when it comes to doctrine at least we cannot fall into you know putting those doctrines aside just for the sake of ecumenism and i think i'm saying that right i'm <laughs> i'm pronouncing it the way that carl truman says it you know and he's a british guy so i could be butchering it but we'll see um so you know we're to be at peace with all men but we are to not uh, compromise on uh, those critical doctrines i think jude is really helpful here jude talks about this to some extent jude 1 3 through 4 or jude 3 through 4 since there's only one chapter beloved while i was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation i found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude is saying here, we're to contend for the faith, we're to stand up for the faith, we're to, we're to assert the faith, right? And we're to do so against those who would seek to undermine it, right? We're to do that against those who would seek to undermine uh, the truth of the gospel and those critical doctrines of the faith. We're to contend for it. That's a command. It's not an option. It's not like, well, you know, if you feel like it, if you feel like knowing your Bible today, you're welcome to know, do that. No, you need to know your Bible. We need to grow in our knowledge of this of biblical things, and we're to contend for the faith because there are wicked men who will come into churches, and it's in churches that you primarily find this happening. They will come in and try to sow division and pull the sheep away from the shepherd. They will do that. And we have to stand our ground on the gospel, on the doctrine of God, on these core issues. We cannot give any ground to the enemy. We have to be strong in this way. We have to contend from the faith. So there's strong words that Jude is using here uh, that we have to we have to uh, you know take to heart. And so this necessarily means that we will come in opposition to those who do not share the scriptures view and would rather promote lies instead of biblical truth on the foundations of the faith. Okay? We cannot give any ground. No battles lost, no retreat, but we press forward. This is war. It is war. Christian life is not about love, happiness, and, you know, living like a free-living hippie. That's not what the Christian life is. Although there is joy and there is a peace that surpasses all understanding, it is war against those who would seek to undermine the Christian faith and undermine God's word. We have to press forward, like Paul says in Philippians 3. We look forward. We don't look behind at our past life and our sins. We press on towards that heavenly prize. And part of that is contending for the faith. Feelings are not compared to one's soul. Sometimes you got to offend people. Sometimes you got to say things that are not comfortable in order to get people's attention. 
Um, and you can't worry about what people think sometimes. You just have to contend for the faith because people's souls are at stake. There's an urgentness here that is uh, in play. And sometimes harshness is needed, even in, in Jude 23. You know, it, he talks, Jude talks about making a distinction. Some, some people you're, you know, you're, you're gracious with and a little bit, uh, you know, you, you take with a lighter hand, maybe more white glove. But then there's those that you must pluck from the fire, right? You pluck from the fire, even hating the garment stained by the flesh, right? You're, you're, there is a harshness sometimes that you have to have uh, with, uh, with some of these people, right? Even with the false teachers. But it's interesting that even with false teachers, Jude still says that there is to be, you know, somewhat of a, you know, a, uh, a loving spirit and a calm spirit. But sometimes harshness is needed. You pluck from the fire, right? You pluck from the fire. Sometimes you have to be quick about it. So there, you know, there has to be some balance there. But in terms of how to deal with division like this, uh, ultimately the churches, you know, if you're from a particular Baptist persuasion, it would the churches are going to have to deal with these issues as they come. This would definitely, in my opinion, be a Matthew 18 model where we have to confront this person with their their error. But it's interesting the way the particular Baptists dealt with Thomas Collier. They had a very methodical way of dealing with this. Uh, he wasn't thrown out of the churches right away. Okay, There is a process by which he was dealt with, which uh, you know did include this book. This book was a response to Collier. It was part of the way that the particular Baptists were dealing with him. They were dealing with it at the local church level, and this became kind of more of a a public matter, especially after, um, you know, after Collier was not repenting. <laughs> and so, you know, Cox wrote this and then I think Collier wrote a response to this. And then it was just kind of like, oh man, he's not going to repent. He, he's continuing, he's digging his heels. Okay. We, we got to really, you know, we got to deal with this even more. This is, this is very different than just somebody who, receives correction and is like, okay, you know what? I, I'm brother, you know what? I'm sorry. I was off. You're right. That's, that's not what the scriptures teach. I repent. Thank you for pointing that out to me. This was not Collier was digging his heels and said, no, I'm, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to follow this false teaching, even though I've been corrected. And so the churches, you know, the particular Baptists had to figure out how to deal with that. They couldn't just blow it off. It was, it was very important that they, uh, you know, deal with these things correctly. Right. So it's interesting to see uh, the way they did that. Again, uh, Sam Renahan brings this out um, in here. Um, but there I mean, even in this, there seems to be a desire for Collier to repent, as should be the case with anyone who claims to be a Christian and, and has fallen into false doctrine. Right. They may have they claim doctrine before the right doctrine and then they fall into false doctrine uh we should desire the repentance we're not trying to kick people out of the church we want them to grow and sometimes we fall into sin in our weaknesses we fall into false doctrine in our weaknesses and we you know need to be brought back and in here this was the desire of the particular baptists who put their names on this they wanted collier to repent they they weren't trying to kick him out they sought repentance but when it became clear that he didn't care and that he would not be corrected, 
then it was, you know, then the, the conversation changed, right? Conversation changed. And I want to read a little bit about this again from page 101 of, of uh, Sam's book here in looking at that, the joint letter they put together against Collier. Uh, so they say some things here as it relates, and I'll, I'll read from page 102. It says one, quote, that this is the choosing of a new option, the signification of the word heresy doth in evidence, which is derived from a word that signifieth election of choice. Two, that it is not every new opinion, but that only that is subversive of a fundamental truth, which uh, will easily be granted. Otherwise, men must be rejected for every mistake that they are now not presently convinced of which is contrary to the rule of Christ and that love and forbearance Christians ought to exercise towards one another. So again, what are they saying here? We only call somebody a heretic who embraces a you know, something that is against fundamental doctrine of the faith, right? This isn't every new opinion. If someone adopts something about the scriptures that isn't taught in the scripture or it's against the scriptures and uh, it's not fundamental to the faith, we shouldn't kick that person out, right? We're to have patience and forbearance with them. Again, Ephesians 4.1, very important here. We're to have patience and forbearance with them because otherwise we'd all be kicked out because we all can fall and we all have imperfect understandings of Scripture and of God and, and things like that. But that's very different than embracing something that is contrary to the fundamentals of the faith, right? Only that is subversive of a, uh, but that only that is subversive of a fundamental truth. Number three, he is only properly termed a heretic that hath formerly professed the Christian religion because such a one is self-condemned, though perhaps not always in the present judgment of his conscience, yet at least by his former profession. So they saw a heretic as someone who said, I'm a, I was a Christian or I'm a Christian and I held to these views, the proper fundamental doctrines of the faith. And then I left them, right? And that's, I, I think that's safe to say because heresy really comes from the idea of someone who's dividing, right? So, I mean, in order to divide something, you'd have to, you know, be divisive in your own nature in terms of leaving something. You have to have once embraced it, right? So I think that's kind of where they're going with that. And then number four, this is very important. It is the persisting of such a person in such a heresy after proper means hath been used for his conviction that doth dominate a man to be a heretic. For a weak Christian may possibly be surprised by temptation and the subtlety of deceivers into such an opinion as obstinately maintained would destroy the faith of the person who yet flies from the snare as soon as it is discovered to him. So again, they're making a distinction between those who persist in false doctrine after correction and those who, you know, are led aside by temptation and then they come back, right? That there's a difference between that. So they, they were trying to be patient with Collier. They weren't trying to kick him out. And this is the mindset we should have towards those who might embrace um, even, even a, a doctrine that is against the fundamentals of the faith. We should work with them. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they, you know, got swept up in something and they repent and they come back. But it's, it's, that's completely different than someone who persists in that mindset. So we have to be really careful about that. Uh, I see a couple comments here from John. 
Um, this is from earlier. Uh, I do agree, but there is another danger on the other side. Far more than people coming into the church so division, I see people coming who have scripture-based ideas the church has never heard of, and because they've never heard of it before, the church spent years uh, contending against the truth. Um, there's another danger. Far, far more people come into the church so division. I see people come. The church has never heard of. I think what you're saying, John, is that there are people who come with new ideas, maybe a church is not familiar with, and then they try to, they spend a lot of time trying to deal with those particular issues people have brought in that the church has never heard of, and it could uh, cause problems. Yeah, I could see how that could be problematic. Um, I think, you know, there has to be a balance. Obviously, you know, elders and a pastor, they can't spend all their time on one topic, right? There's a lot of things going on in a church that need to be addressed, especially if a pastor is preaching through a book expositionally. Um, a pastor is you know, not going to have time to just deal with every little thing that comes his way or spend so much time on one topic. So there have to be a balance there. So I think I see what you're saying. Um, and I would agree that you know, a church has to you know, prioritize certain things. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you can still contend for the truth without spending an enormous amount of time on one topic. Right. You can spend you can declare through our confession. OK, this is what we believe. And here's some resources that help with that. OK, while we're dealing with this thing over here, maybe we can talk to this person at a personal level over a cup of coffee. Uh, maybe there are sermons that need to be preached on it. There's there's multiple ways you could contend for the truth without actually you know having to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, time on it. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Uh, federal X theology doctrine divides, but it also unifies. Yes, it does. Yep. It, it's kind of funny. It's it's like a, a two-sided coin, right? You have doctrine divides on the one end against those who don't want to have anything to do with that fundamental doctrine, but it also unites those who do believe it. And that's what it's supposed to do, right? As Christians, it's supposed to unite us and bring us together. Again, Ephesians 4. God has given gifts to the church, pastors, teachers, evangelists, right? So why? So that we are, we can grow up in the faith. We're growing up in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, because not all of us are at the same place. So we need God's means in his church to help us to grow in that way. Yep. So very good point. Uh, thank you for that comment. All right. Moving on here. We're almost done here. Uh, division is not over doctrine only, but also over sin. Sin in the church, not just doctrine. And you could say um, that, you know, de denying a fundamental doctrine in the Christian faith is sinful uh, because it's it's certainly not in accordance with what God wants us to do in terms of, uh, you know, un believing the right things, especially for salvation. But. Uh, I'm talking more on the practical level, like someone is outright living in some, you know, debaucherous lifestyle or whatever the case might be. That's not necessarily strictly doctrinal. Um, and an example of this would be like First Corinthians 5, where the man was living with his mother-in-law or his mother-in-law, uh, father's wife or his mom, I guess. Glory is not good. You don't know little leaven leavens a whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, but 
nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's First Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. And this was talking about that particular episode where I think it was mother-in-law or mother, I can't remember. It was some family member that this person was having sexual relations with and Paul saying, you need to put that person out from among you because uh, they were living in sin. They weren't uh, repenting. Um, so Paul is saying that you can't have, uh, you know, leaven in your unleavened lump. And he's likening the church to an unleavened bread. And the sinner is one who is, uh, you know, the leaven, right? We're to purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, right? And Paul will use kind of these, you know, comparisons like leaven, uh, bad company, corrupts good morals, things like that to kind of prove his point. There is division that Christians need to have over people who call themselves Christians, profess Christianity, but are also living in unrepentant sin. And of course, like we talked about uh, last week, talked about Matthew 18, that process would have to go through and run its course. But at the end of the day, there is division that has to be had over sinful lifestyles, unrepentant sinful lifestyles, and just sin in general. We, we, can't, uh, you know, we can't unify over our sin. It must be dealt with properly. For unrepentant people in our own lives, we should be repenting of our sins and seeking to turn away from them. There's division there, right? Amongst the people, amongst ourselves, we have to put those things out from among us. And sometimes opposing sin will sever friendships and close bonds. Sometimes it will. I've experienced that in uh, my own life uh, where, you know, you've had to take a stand uh, for something as it relates to sin and you lose good friends over it. I, I've, I've experienced that. Um, and sometimes that will happen, you know, it, and there will be division sometimes as a result of that. But we have to stand firm on what the scriptures say. But we should be willing to give all for Christ as we push forward in righteousness toward the end of that race. And I mentioned Philippians chapter three before we're to continue to push forward, looking forward, not looking behind us to our old sin, our old life, but we're focused forward in eternity. That's where our focus should be, Philippians 3, 12 through 16. All right, so kind of wrapping up here a little bit, a little bit of application. A couple of things I want to uh, bring out here. For one, Christians aren't divisive enough. Christians aren't divisive enough. And, and this is specifically related to ecumenism, where you know, there is this desire to see unity instead of unifying on the actual core tenets of the faith. And this kind of goes back, I think, to what um, federal theology said here, that doctrine divides, but it also unites, right? But unfortunately, we do see among professing Christians, there are groups of people that will try to seek unity, but without unifying in the right way. They're not unifying on proper doctrine, they're trying to unify uh, while putting aside proper doctrine, right? That's uh, That becomes very, very problematic very fast. We find ourselves, for instance, letting people who hold, you know, to at the very least idolatrous views of God come and run shoulders instead of contending for that faith uh, properly. You know, I'm looking at you, G3, looking at you. Or a James White rubbing shoulders with a Doug Wilson, even though Wilson does not believe in biblical justification. As we've demonstrated on this show, you can go and listen to 
the episode we did on actually I did two episodes. We did one on federal vision and we did one on imputed righteousness or infused righteousness uh, is the instrument of imputed righteousness as Wilson has promoted. You see, again, you see this ecumenism, right? Ecumenism, right? Wilson and, and White share a lot of the same views of culture. So they unite on that, but on critical doctrines like justification, no, no, we're that's not as big of a deal, um, you know, to to deal with. Even though all the evidence is out there for uh, for Wilson to be condemned in that way, and these things could be done for all kinds of reasons, right? But the the fact remains that the proper issues are not dealt with. They're not dealt with in one way or another. Some critical doctrine is put aside and seen as not fundamental but you know tertiary we don't have that's that's not dividing we can you know go over here and you know rub shoulders in in this particular topic that's not as important as that one over there right you see that happen all the time they're willing to overlook errors on critical issues while unifying on secondary matters and that is that's very very dangerous to do and we see that happening again and again uh, in so-called reform circles uh, ecumenism can lead to compromise. First Corinthians 15, 23, bad company corrupts good morals. And Paul is using this, we're talking about in the church, at least primarily. Those who hold the heretical doctrines and left unchecked and are repentant in the face of continuous correction can have a negative influence upon other Christians. And same with those who live in outright sinful lifestyles, like the guy who is living with a relative in First Corinthians 5. It can have an impact upon other Christians in the church. So there has to be some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of way of getting those people out because it can, it not only pollutes the church, so to speak, but it also has an impact upon, uh, you know, the church's order. Uh, it can lead other people astray, right? If you look at Galatians 6 1, the brethren, if a man is overtaken by any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. But notice what Paul says here. He gives a warning. He says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So that person can cause temptation in the hearts of other Christians and lead them into the same sin they are. So they need to be put out of the church, right? They need to be put out of the church. And I think Paul's point here is not that temptation is bad, but just you have to be careful when correcting people and that the influence that people can have it can it can lead people astray it can have a tremendous maybe even an overpowering temptation upon people or or at the very least some sort of negative impact upon uh people in the church uh that they need to be put out not just for the purity of the church but you know bad company corrupts good morals it can it can have an impact on the other people and, and maybe even lead them astray so it's it's an area that we have to divide upon OK. Um, and we've already talked a little bit about divisiveness, you know, will primarily come, um, you know, within the church. And there I think there's a real sense where divisiveness rarely comes from outside the church. You know, it's typically, if at all, I think the, the biblical model that we see when talking about false teachers, these are people who creep into the church. They come in. No one notices them necessarily. They'll come in and no one will see them. And they will cause trouble. They'll stir people up. They'll teach false doctrines. They come into the church, right? 
Um, so there, there has to be um, some careful, careful watch over what's happening in a church. Doesn't mean you're spying on people necessarily, but it just means that you are, you know, being aware of what people are saying, what's coming from your people in terms of doctrine, stuff like that, because it is, you know, a real danger that false doctrine creeps into the church uh, in that way. I see another comment here from uh, from Brother Jamie, and this is from earlier. Totally agree, Brother. There is doctrinal error and there is practical sin, and the one will certainly lead to the other. Right doctrine should always lead us to a sanctified life, all of grace. Yes, right doctrine should always lead us to a sanctified life. Yeah, doctrine does impact how we live. If our doctrine is flawed, it will likely lead us to living uh, in a wrong way. And that's why we have to have our doctrine correct. And, and even just practical doctrine too, doctrine that might have to do with everyday life. If my doctrine of marriage is wrong in terms of how I'm supposed to treat my wife, then I'm probably going to treat her in accordance with that doctrine. So we have to be careful that, okay, I need to inform my understanding of what the Bible says about marriage uh, with what the Bible says about marriage, right? So I can live properly. It's how am I going to know what God wants for me if I don't read his word? So I, I need to, I need to, you know, understand what those things are in order to live properly. Thank you for that comment, brother. All right. I think that's all we have for today. I want to thank, you know, our patrons, um, you know, who can, who faithfully uh, support us uh, and all of our patrons, including David and Stephen. Um, I want to you know, put out there, but thank you everybody for your attention today. I hope this was helpful and uh, can give some uh, good material uh, that might be helpful. Um, we got some, you know, some guests coming on the show, uh, hopefully over the next couple of months, Lord willing. Um, so, you know, we got some more stuff coming down the road. We got some book reviews that we're going to be doing, book responses, I should say. Um, we've already announced the one on Christian nationalism, the case for Christian nationalism. We're going to be doing a, uh, an actual, it's going to be a discussion, but it's a discussion that's in the form of a response. Um, so Brother Andrew and I are actually working through that book right now. It's a huge book. It's almost 500 pages. So we're, we're, we're pushing through it, but hopefully we can quote unquote demystify that discussion and, and provide some helpful uh, response to that. And, and we'll be doing some other stuff too, but I hope this has been helpful. Um, and thank you for our faithful listeners who continue to, to tune in and, and, you know, we appreciate your support and um, everyone have a great Lord's day tomorrow and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Take care.